I uh, have a speech defect, so you can either grow accustomed to it or, <clears throat> or run screaming from the room. Take your pick. I won't break down in tears if you decide you can't stand it anymore. I also have a new hip joint, right side. That was four months ago, yeah, four. And this one is two months ago. And for the last few days, I have been doing my physical therapy exercises, which has exhausted me. So I had to use my cane. Um, this, by the way, is a magic cane. It uh, folds like this. And I think I'm going to keep it, because I found that when I have this cane, people are very sympathetic. So in an airport, I go up to the desk, and I'm with my cane. They say, oh, ma'am, would you like a, a chair? And of course I would, and so on. So I, I was uh, Donald until age 53. So I was born in 1942, which makes me very old. And from age 11, I would go to sleep praying for two things. The following morning, I wouldn't stutter. And the following morning, I would be a girl. And at age 53, I got half of my prayers, which is not bad for an Episcopalian, an Anglican. I, uh, I accepted my maleness. I accepted that persona, that role. I'll, I'll, I'll sit down every once in a while just to keep myself <coughs> in shape. And decided, because it was 1953, that there was nothing to be done. I mean, the psychiatrists were still giving gay children electroshock therapy in 1953. So <laughs> imagine what they would do to a transgender person, someone who wanted to change gender. So I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anyone. And I had to be very secretive about the occasional cross-dressing I would do. There was always a sexual element in the, in, in, in the cross-dressing, which is common enough. But in any case, so I went. The only person who ever knew about this was my wife after we married, about three months into our marriage. I, I didn't tell her before the marriage, which is shameful. But she didn't. We, 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 we decided, and that was kind of appropriate for the time we got married, 1965, that, well, this was one of the peculiar things that men do. Some of them are foot fetishes and fetishists, and some of them like whips and you know, what's the big deal? It's just a minor part of my sexuality on our analysis. I was what's known as a heterosexual crossdresser, said I. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay, was kind of my attitude. I had, a, I had so I, I was a father, I was a husband, and I think in both of those, a um, reasonable success. I mean, I wasn't, didn't um, beat my wife or, or my children for that matter. Um, and as a, as a guy, I was, you know, I was in a private school. We were just over at your son's private school, um, um, uh, um, Sydney Grammar. 
at such schools. I was at such a school in Boston, and sports was required, so I did the sports. I'm here, here, here I stand up for this. Whoop, help. Um, you're looking at the captain of her high school football team. I was a guard in American gridiron. So I, I think I can still do a, if I had to, I hope I never have to, I think I could do a pretty good cross-body block. You know, in American football, you can block people. You can't do it in, in rugby, so you can run into them even if they don't have the ball. Long time ago, there was a film called The World According to Garp, and John Liskow, in his first really important role in Hollywood, played a a nurse, was he, he playing a nurse or, no, he was play, playing a bodyguard, but this is, this, now this is 1968 or something, he's this in the, in, in the book from which this comes and in the film, he had been a wide receiver for the Baltimore Colts, which means an American football, professional football player. And uh, John, who I know sl uh, slightly in one scene in the movie, was defending the heroine, and he did a cross-body block, which means you throw yourself at whoever you're trying to stop. It's quite an ex exciting thing to do. My, 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 my joke is that if, if, if Hollywood ever does my story, I want it to be either um, Meryl Streep or John Lithgow, I don't care which. <laughs> Because John's about the best male actor in Hollywood, and without question, Meryl Streep is the best female, or GG as we call them, genetic girls, or XX people. I mean, every every cell of my body says XY 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 XY, um, and every cell of yours says XX XX. So I I can't be a woman in any deep existential sense, deep. I can't have had a, a girlhood. I can't have a, ever born children. But I can, I can be, a, be a woman in social presentation. Again, that word, persona. I can operate in society in the other gender. Now, as Paul mentioned, I, I became, after my gender change, <coughs> which uh, happened in the end of 1995, at least for social presentation, um, I didn't get the pl plumbing operation until uh, the summer of 96, uh, when I um, stayed at Kate's house here. This is Catherine Cummings, one of the great... Um, uh, figures in the Australian community, a gender saint. I offer you a gender saint. I, 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 I heard this afternoon about the first Australian saint. What was her name? Mary McKillop. Ma Mary McKillop. She's number two. She's next. You were there first, much, much to be sure. And so I, um, I changed then, and then a couple of years later I became a Christian. Now, I don't mean by that I was walking down one day and Jesus appeared before me or something. 
I mean that I became an Anglican and worked at it, as I think that's what faith is about, is a journey. And a few months ago, my priest in Chicago, by, by the way, in my tiny little congregation in Chicago, and I came back to Chicago having taught for 19 years at the University of Iowa. This is 2000 now, well after my transition. Um, I came back to Chicago, and there was this tiny little Episcopalian church, which that's what we call Anglican churches in the United States, because we couldn't, after the revolution, go on calling them Anglican. That wasn't going to work. And my Episcopalian church across the street with a very tiny congregation, and I was not the only gender crosser. <laughs> there was someone in this little congregation going the other way. So, you know, what to make of that? My, it's we're progressive Episcopalians. We believe in female priests, or no, we don't believe in them. We've seen them. Um, uh, we, um, my, my priest is gay. He just got married last um, summer, and I mean northern summer. And so I became a Christian. And he, uh, as I said, about four months ago, he gave a very interesting sermon, very affecting. He said that your persona, your external appearance, your external role in society, whatever role you want, your role as a lawyer, your role as a doctor, your role as a, uh, as a mother, your role as a, as, a, as a race car driver, whatever, that's your persona. And your soul, let's speak in Christian terms, I don't want to offend the atheists here, but you know, you'll have to get used to it. Um, here's your persona and here's your soul. And he said, the purpose of a religious life is to bring your soul closer to your persona. Bring your soul and persona together. And from a psychological point of view, you can see it makes a lot of sense. It's just common sense. It's not really about Christianity, although it is. It's about a healthy life, healthy psychological life, where your, your, what you do in the world is close to what you regard as your, not just what you regard, but what is your inner life. And that makes for a, f a, a full life, a comfortable life, you could say, a happy life, if you want to talk that way. But in any case, it makes for a, here's the word, come, come to think of it, it makes for integrity, which means wholeness. Um, and I went up to Ted afterwards and I said, that was a very good sermon. And you know, that's what happened in my gender change. I brought my persona, my soul came closer to my persona. I feel very comfortable as Deirdre. I, I, and I was always a little uncomfortable as a guy. I was a, you know, I was a guy. I pretended to know something about wine and car repair. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't ask for directions. Actually, he was just doing it. We were trying to find our way, and he wouldn't ask directions. And I said, Paul, that's a little male, what you're doing. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, but so I, I, and I said to Ted, maybe that's the, because I haven't ever quite understood why I was so drawn to um, 
Christianity after my gender change. Um, and and I, don't, I didn't see the connection, but I think that's it. That having brought myself, myself, Deirdre, will the real Deirdre stand up, the essential, as uh, this is Jungian talk, the, um, the anima as opposed to the animus, the female principle as opposed to the male, which everyone in this room has, both, right? You've got in you, your father and your uncle and your brother. You have your father and son. You, you have, in, you have your, your, your mother and your aunt. We have inside us both of those principles. And what we express in the persona is one or the other, or some, I don't care, some combination if you want. It doesn't bother me. And so I felt that my, I, from the sermon I concluded that that's what drew me to Christianity. And I feel very comfortable as a Christian. I, I was at a conference of biologists, small conference of biologists in Vienna a couple of years ago. And it sort of casually came out. I didn't make a big thing of it that I was a Christian. And my hostess said, she was a biologist. She said, you're a Christian. How can you be at a conference on Darwin and be a Christian? And evidently her idea of Christians is Jerry Falwell and people who believe that the dinosaurs uh, were created and their bones were put in the rocks to fool us or something. Um, so, so I've been I've been happy. I, um, I was a, I was this is strange. I'm a career-driven person. I'm a scholar and teacher and and uh, so on. And for a, and I expected when I was a professor at the University of Iowa, I expected to lose my job. I expected to not be able to get a job because this is 1995, and it was somewhat unexplored um, territory, although Kate was earlier. Um, and that such a career-driven person would be willing to go, I don't know, be a secretary in a grain elevator in Spokane, Washington, if she could be a woman, is a measure, perhaps, of the intensity of this desire. But I want to emphasize to you that these kinds of desires are not qualitatively different from other desires we have as human beings, other changes we want to make in our lives. I, I remember when I, I had been cross-dressing in clubs for about eight months. I had discovered there were clubs of cross-dressers. Turns out they go to the Holiday Inn and, um, and they get dressed up and then they get undressed, not undressed, but put back their male clothes and go home. And they're mostly married. Surprisingly large number of engineers in this group. Don't, don't ask me why. It's very bizarre. I won't accuse any engineers here of being a cross-dresser, but there are quite a few of them. And I'd been doing that because I discovered it early in 1995, very beginnings of the internet. So I, I discovered it. And I, I was coming home from a um, from a uh, cross-dressing adventure in uh, Chicago with a friend of mine. 
And we went to, went, went to lesbian bars and danced, and we had a great time. So we were out until 4 in the morning, and I was exhausted. So we started to drive back to Iowa, 250 miles away, 400 kilometers away, driving back to Iowa. And I remember the exact place in the road where it occurred to me that I could become a woman, and as I always had, I wanted to be. So from, now here's something very strange. Most of our choices in life, we think, well, maybe I should have gone to law school, or maybe I should have become a railway engineer or something. Maybe I should have gone to sea. I don't know. But from that moment on, I have, not, I have had not a moment of doubt. You all know those moments of doubt at 4 o'clock in the morning, right? When you're, you're at your most vulnerable emotionally and you and you don't and that's when you know the mistakes you've made in your life or the choices you've made that might not be optimal as we economists say um, pop up and then you're you wake up sweating or something it's never happened to me not once and that's very unusual so I was married for 30 years. I have two children. My oldest is 45. My daughter is 40. Um, the only bad news, the so, but, but wait a second, I haven't finished. Yet, I could go, it turned out there was no problem. Well, uh, someone else will have to find out if there was no problem. Maybe I should have been, was being considered for an appointment at uh, Oxford or something and was, said, oh, well, but we don't want that queer, maybe. I somehow don't think so. Um, but I was able to go on with my wild career. I was able to go on teaching. Turns out that the students, even in 1996, when I got our next, it's 96, 97, early 97, when I came back from a year in Holland, where I went to relieve the pressure on my, my wife and children to teach. Um, and then I came back to Iowa. I thought, oh, boy, Iowa's a conservative state. It's kind of in the middle of the country. And I thought, oh, that'll be rough. Turns out that the kids even then didn't, didn't, didn't care. They had grown up with Boy George and other rock musicians with eye makeup, and it didn't matter to them. Um, so I, I had been married for 30 years with these two children. And the only bad news, I'm happy. You can see I'm a happy person. The only bad news is that my former wife, who's the, who's the love of my life, I still love her. I was with her for a third of a century, officially married for 30 years, won't talk to me. And my two children won't talk to me. And I've tried various things. If you can think of any other way, p polite way of persuading them to open up to me. I'd appreciate it. Um, it's been now, let's see, 18 years. And I have three grandchildren I've never seen. Because they won't talk to anyone in my family. They won't talk to my mother, their grandmother. They won't talk to my brother and sister, their uncle and aunt. They won't talk to anyone who represents me. I don't know quite why, because they stopped talking to me sort of immediately. 
But as I tell my sad story, that that's the only sadness now. I don't want you to view this as a tragedy, although this part is nasty. But as, as I, when I tell my sad story, out come the stories from your families of Aunt Alice, who said something unkind to Uncle George at Christmas dinner 30 years ago, and they never spoke again. Can any of you think of cases like that in your own family, where, um, where children have rebelled against their father, say his son against his father, and they've never spoken to each other again? But these rifts in families are very common. As an economist, I find it really irritating because it's inefficient. <laughs> Love is not so abundant in the world that it's a wise plan to throw it away with both hands. Believe me, if you've got any of these rifts in your life, heal them. Say you're sorry if that's necessary. Don't wait for the other person to say she's sorry or he's sorry. Go back. Love conquers all. I had to learn a lot of stuff, which the XX people here in the room learned as girls. I had to learn how to put earrings in. Remember at that hospital I was in, and where was it? And where was it? The, the, the suburb of Sydney where the hospital was. You remember? Yeah, I think so. And I, I was trying to put my earrings in, and I didn't know how hard to push. And then I had to learn eye makeup. Boy, is that complicated. That, guys, that is rocket science. That is really hard. 14-year-old girls find it rather easy, but you guys, you would find it very hard. And then I also got a lot of uh, um, cosmetic surgery. Because the plumbing operation, which people who aren't, don't, doesn't, don't know about this stuff, think is the most important thing. Ah, yes, that uh, is not socially important. It's not important for your persona. I mean, I hope there's no one here who gets checked a hundred times a day for the state of their genitals. Is there anyone here who gets checked a hundred times a day for the condition of their plumbing? I hope not. I would be appalled if there was such a person. <laughs> Whereas you do get checked a hundred times a day for your face. That's the first thing people look at, your hair. Um, if you've got a beard, you've got to get rid of it. And I did it with electrolysis, which is not too nice, but that's what you do. Um, and you have to learn to present in the world in a way that gives off the right gender cues. That's all it's about. It's about passing. It's not about tricking people or men sneaking into women's spaces. Believe me, if the society gets very um, comfortable with gender crossing, it is not the case that masses of men are going to change gender and vice versa. It's just not going to happen. Most people are, whether they like the way their gender is treated in society or their gender role entirely, most people are comfortable in their assigned gender, and they never question it. Um, so the, the, um, 
so, so I had to learn things. I had to learn to sit and you know, look. Um, I notice this in undergraduate men when I teach. The men sit like this. <laughs> and then they've got a baseball cap on backwards or askew. And women don't do that. They sit properly. Now, they don't. I'm not trying to be a 1950s woman with a little pillow box hat and gloves and going to the garden party to eat cucumber sandwiches. I'm not that kind of woman. If you knew my mother, she's 91. She were here. She's kind of a small version of me. Not too surprisingly, much smaller. And when we go down the street, it's a little startling because it's Mutt and Jeff was a cartoon characters in the United States with big differential in height. And um, she's tough. She's assertive. She's womanly, but she's a tough is not quite the word. Well, let's stop with that. She's a not passive. She's like me in being a kind of extroverted and uh, so on. So you'd find if my, if my mother were here you, and she were talking, um, you'd see that we're very similar. Even in our, our, our gestures, we're very similar. By the way, she's got, she's got some great advice. She says to me once, she said, don't do anything more interesting than your gender change. Don't decide to become a horse or a tree <laughs> or something. You've, you've had your interesting episode. No more, dear. Come on. No more of that. Um, so I had to learn to sit right in a way that conveys the right gender signal because I, I, some people can do this and can be between the genders and deny the binary of genders. And that's okay if that's the life they want to lead, but I don't. I want to move from one gender category to another, and I don't want to be read all the time as a man in a dress. Now, I can show you the problem, <coughs> why I needed a lot of surgery, by taking advantage of this amazing modern technology, to show you, um, in, my, in my book, makes a wonderful Christmas present to all your lists. You can buy about 40 of them and solve your Christmas shopping. Kate, by the way, has a wonderful book, Kate Cummings, which will be rather easier to buy in Australia than this one. Uh, but anyway, here's, uh, here's how I looked in drag. Well, you know, it's very nice, but it's a wig, obviously, and uh, very heavy pancake makeup to cover the beard, and, you know, it's in drag, 1995, and, but if you saw that person walking down the street, you'd say, oh, look, there's a man in a wig. Um, and uh, here's me before all this. Right? That picture down at the right is a square dancing outfit in the last five years of our marriage, a very successful marriage, a very good marriage. God damn it. Bloody things. What did I do? Help, help. Oh, wait a second, turn the light off. Can you, can you help me? There's the light. Oh, I hate this stuff. This is so annoying. You try to f fix it. Anyway, 
last five years of our marriage, we, um, we did square dancing, American square dancing, which I'm telling you is a gas. We went on a square dancing tour of the Caribbean. Half the boat were square dancers, and the others were ha other people were having a very strange experience. <laughs> and we've square danced in England. We've square danced in uh, Sweden. We had a great time. Um, and so let's get this to work. Uh, yeah, this bloody thing. I hate this technology. Show. There, there's something I did here. I accidentally pressed something, and no, the cable didn't come off. I, I just, I just hit something with my. No, there's no way of doing it. Well, you know, we're screwed. <laughs> I hate this technology. It's, it's designed by engineers. You see, I have a thing about engineers. <laughs> Actually, I like engineers very much, and I'm kind of an economic engineer myself because I'm quantitative and I like, um, I like uh, numbers. But um, the engineers, when they design these things, don't think about human beings. They think about how many features they can cram into it that only they know how to use. You, you've had the feeling... I, three years ago, I bought a smartphone. I had to abandon it. It was too smart for me. There we go. Okay, good. Okay, now stop. Don't do anything. Don't, don't touch anything. Don't touch. Don't touch. I'll be very careful. I'll point it with this. So anyway, here's where our house in Iowa. And here's me uh, playing, playing, playing cricket. I'm a big cricket fan, which is one of the reasons I'm here in Australia. My speaking tour you know the schedule, has a strange similarity to the travels of the English cricket team. Next year, next week I'll be in Adelaide, and then, hmm, let's go to Perth. That seems like a good idea. So I'm, I'm a big cricket player. And as you can see, this is a happy person. I wasn't a sad sack. I wasn't... Here, now, here's, here, this is a quiz. This is the Harvard, Harvard fencing team in 1963. Whoops, wait a second. Let me cover this so that you can't tell. Let me cover it so you can't, so you don't know. Okay, who's me? Can you tell where I am? Which one's me? There you go. No, yeah, third from left. That's our coach. That's a colleague of mine, and that's me right there. Um, I was uh, epe. If I wasn't, if I didn't have my hip problem, I'd show you how I, how I, uh, how I did it. So I was a sportsman. I got my my H. This is me as a child. Um, but you know, here's the problem. So here's some more of me. The problem. So here's the solution. Uh, operations because people do check your face and if you got a big nose or uh, your chin's too big it's wise to get that fixed unless you have a naturally androgynous or feminine face as a man it's not going to look very good as a 
as a woman. By the way, going the other way is in some ways easier if any of you XX people here want to do it. It's, in a, some ways, it's easier than, than the male to female. Because if you start, if any, any born woman in this room were to start today taking male hormones, um, in about six months, you'd have a beard. Your voice would break, so you'd have a male voice. If there was male pattern baldness in your family, you'd develop baldness. You'd develop, um, if you're, I think it varies somewhat by age, but if you're of a young enough age, you'd start to developing more, more muscles. And those signals, the beard especially, and the low voice, low isn't quite, well, yeah, okay, low voice, larger vocal cords. That's what that is. The vocal cords grow, which gives you a man's voice instead of a boy's voice or a woman's voice. And those are very strong gender signals. So no one's going to take you for a man. They might think, well, you're kind of short or whatever. But they won't take you for, uh, for a woman. Whereas the other way around is harder because you've already got height. You've already got the, the big bone frame of a man. And you've got the voice box of a man. I had my, um, I can't sing anymore because I, uh, surgeons are very confident they can do anything. So I went to a, one of the best vocal surgeons in the United States and told him, can you make my voice more feminine? He said, oh yeah, yeah, sure, I can do that. Well, it turned out he couldn't. So now I have the voice I have. I always say to people, I drank a quart of whiskey and smoked 50 cigarettes a day. This is what did it. Uh, you can have this voice too. I think it's kind of sexy myself. So it's, um, it's harder, but if you work at it, you can get it. These are my cheekbones. I paid for them. This is my nose. I bought it. I had glasses before. Glasses. You can't, if any of you are thinking of getting a nose job, you can't wear glasses after a nose job for a month. So my brain said, oh, oh, that's interesting. And it adjusted. I'm nearsighted in one eye, nearsighted in this eye, farsighted in this eye. So the brain adjusted. It said, oh, oh, that's the deal. And then when I went to back to wearing my glasses, it said, oh, no, don't do that. So I haven't had glasses for 18 years because of this. I had my, if you'll notice, men's eyes look like they're further into the skull. That's because they have um, bone, there, there's a me medical term for it, but I don't know what it is. They have bone under their eyebrows. So when, when a man is in the shower, he doesn't have to close his eyes, dear, whereas we do, because we don't have these bones. Well, how to get those bones? Take off your face, grind them down. That's what my surgeon did. So that's the story. Um, how it affected my economics? Well, it's hard to distinguish from growing older. Um, wiser, we hope, because I did that at the same time I got older. 
my, my joke is I became more mature. I became a woman. <laughs> um, the surprises were that my c c career was not disturbed and the quality of female friendship. At the beginning of my book, I have a list of all the, all the, all the women who helped me in various ways over the three years that the book covers. This is a good one. Look at that. News. A woman is not a man. We, we saw this. Nancy and I saw this in, in Paris. And here we are. This is my friend Judith. Where is my friend Kate? She's around here somewhere. Where is Kate in all this? I think I had a photograph of you in the book. I can't remember, Kate. Anyway, um, there's the birth of uh, the daughter of a friend of mine, friends of mine. And this is Ario Klammer, and that's, that's Raika. This is in Holland. And they've just told me that the baby was named Rosa Deirdre Klammer. And I was crying at the time. Um, I, this quality of female friendship, that, that womanly solidarity and grace, these are all, all the women, their first names and their last initials. And, and, and Kate is in here somewhere. But there are so many of them. The grace of inviting me to lunch, sending a card or a note at the right time, all the way up to protecting me from my, from my psychologist uh, um, sister who decided I was crazy, tried to have me committed three times, succeeded twice. So I spent overnight in the madhouse twice. Um, it's an experience that every middle-class person ought to have, being jailed when you don't know you're going to come out, because that's the trouble with psychiatry. If they decide you're, you're sick, they can keep you as long as they want. So unlike criminal behavior, where you know how many years you're going to get in the can, with psychiatry you don't. I spent $8,000 in attorney's fees getting out of these, um, these locked wards. By the way, I'm back on good terms with my, with my sister again, but that it took a few years, as you can understand. But these are, these are all, all the small and large graces. I don't know how it is going the other way. Um, Men are kind of nice and hail fellows, and they don't object too much to a gender crosser. They say, well, of course you want to be a man. Who wouldn't? I mean, come on. <laughs> then you can obsess about football and cricket uh, um, or whatever. Um, but this is, this is news to the, 
to lots of men, that there's a, um, a quality of female friendship. At least it came as news to me. Let's be personal about it. It startled me. And it's been one of the great joys of my, my life to get to know women um, in a close way that most men don't. Even their wives, they don't know very well. And they don't, you know, a female friend of mine was talking to a male friend of mine, and she asked him, how many friends do you have, Richard? And he said, I have hundreds of friends. I've lived in Berkeley for 20 years. She said, no, no, I don't mean people who won't shoot you in the street. I don't mean people who, you know, might know your name. I mean people who you can call at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, I need to talk. And Richard thought for a moment and said, well, I don't have anyone like that. Whereas most women have a few girlfriends of that depth. But I, I don't want to discourage the guys here. I mean, there are nice things about being a man, nice things about being a woman. I prefer the latter. Thank you. So I'll be, I'll be glad to talk about anything else you want to talk about. Yeah. reflected on it a little. I, um, for one thing, I don't like to use male-sounding tricks in my research or in my, in, in my writing. I feel embarrassed using them. Um, but here's, here's the story. A couple of months into my gender change, I was in Holland at Erasmus University with a group of other economists. They, of course, knew my situation and had no problem with it because economists are kind of into laissez-faire, you know. But if you want to spend it, go ahead. Hey, I have no objection. Don, I mean, I mean, Deirdre. And uh, we were talking about economics, as economists tend to do when they get together. And I made a point and everyone ignored me. And two minutes later, George made the identical point. And all the men turned to George and said, George, that's a great point. You ought to do an article. You're going to get the Nobel Prize for this excellent argument. And I said to myself, yes, they're treating me like a woman. <laughs> it was the first and the last time I was pleased by that reaction. Yeah, no, I, I, I now, that, but how, how do you feel your social position, do you think? Well, for one thing, for one thing, before... Uh, my gender change, I was a guy who was a feminist, kind of. Thought of a sense of noblesse oblige. And afterwards, I was just another woman who was a feminist. But it helps to be one. <laughs> then you really know what the issue is about a little more. Now, I don't know it in this deep sense that you people who have grown up as girls and, and, and women do, but I knew it a lot better. So I, I when I did work on um, women's labor force 
participation rate in Britain, for example, I, uh, you know, it's, it's a little more serious to me than it was as a man. As a man, I was kind of reaching down from a superior height to help the poor deers. And uh, as, uh, you know, you know the point. In a, in a racist society, uh, people of color think about it. The dominant white majority doesn't think about it. In a, um, in a society of income differentials, poor people think about it. Rich people think, oh, well, it, no, having lots of money is normal. And likewise here. Um, how it affected my economics is, well, Paul was saying that he thought it may, may have affected my economics, but I, I don't know. I'm, I, you know, the trouble is I'm, I'm inside the experiment, and I don't, I, I, it's hard for me. I, I kind of watch myself. I try to see what I'm doing and why. But it's very hard to know. The hormones are powerful. I can tell you that. But I've been off hormones for many years. I'm a you know 71-year-old woman. I don't have uh, female hormones coursing through my body any more than any, any other 71-year-old woman does. Um, so I don't know. The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in um, again the transition. Yeah. Emotionally, and yeah. To the extent that you can understand your own journey. Yeah. Let's take economics, why not? Suppose you're an 18 and you say, I want to be an economist. Now, you don't actually know what an economist is at 18. You don't know what it's like to be an economist. You don't know that your whole view of the world be, will be grossly distorted from then on. <laughs> it wasn't... It, that's what's odd about it. It's not that there were pleasures of being a woman that I anticipated and boy, oh, to wear, wear nice clothing or something. I could have worn nice clothing as a man. Um, Giannis does. <laughs> this is an inside joke. Uh, um, what we want to do and be is often I mean, I think this is a common experience, is not informed well. Well, here, here's, a, here's a case in point. Who do we want to marry? Who do we fall in love with? Someone said that uh, falling in love is um, this strange experience of having a very great desire to be close to someone you don't know very well, <laughs> which, which really is what young love is. Um, Yet we know we want it without knowing what it is. We want to be a, um, I don't know, uh, 
professional football player or a mother or a um, police detective or something. I mean, it's, it's, in, in a way, it's among the most common human experiences. It's the, it's the, it's, it's the gift that human has, humans have, and they're sometimes their curse, of imagination, of thinking themselves into another role without really much data. Right? Well, I, you know, I feel like Deirdre. I feel like Deirdre, and I, 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 uh, I haven't got a one thing about my position is that I don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend, for that matter. But I don't have a love interest in my life. And I think that if I did, it would reinforce some of the persona part um, more um, exactly. But, you know, I'm, I'm a single woman of a certain age, as they used to say. I tried dating for a while. Actually, I tried a dating service. This was hilarious. I tell you, I, I, I only, only did it about five times, and I said, this is ridiculous. This is not going to work out. But, you know, I got, had a date with a guy who uh, took me to a restaurant. You know, you have films that they show, and then he chooses you. Took me to a restaurant. He spent the whole time talking about his dead wife and his business. He never asked me anything about myself, uh, girls. Does this ring a bell? Uh, <laughs> guys, hint, hint for future successes with 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 women you might want to occasionally ask her what thank you dear what she thinks or what she's all about anyway he then drove me home comes to my apartment building and uh, turns off the engine and sits there and you know what he has in mind <laughs> that he, I'm to invite him upstairs and we'll have a little sex well I'm an old-fashioned girl I'm not going to do that on the first date. <laughs> says, thank you very much. I've enjoyed myself very much. The hell I had. <laughs> anyway, um, what is my womanhood? It's me, that's all. I think that's how my mother would answer. Kate? Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Here, here, here's one thing it doesn't mean. 
because you'll see this in the newspaper a lot, and I think Kate will agree with me, that it doesn't mean you're a woman in a male body. That little kind of journalistic summary is not a very accurate one. The way the way Kate said it is more accurate. You want to be. Not that you are. What? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that, that maybe that's a good phrase to use, as a woman. If you want to be a lawyer, you want to live as a lawyer. <laughs> if you want to be a Australian, you're American, you come to Australia, you want to live as an Australian. Um, and that makes, you know, it, look, here, here's a crucial point here. These are not intellectual matters, and I think you understand that perfectly well. These aren't theorems we're talking about. These are not, it, it's, um, it's, and, and indeed, <laughs> before I did it, before this, this, before this epiphany I talked about in August of 1995, about two months before that, I think I still have it somewhere in my computer, I did, I, I'm an economist, understand, I did a cost-benefit study of becoming a woman. <laughs> and I had the pros and the cons, and it was ridiculous. Then I concluded, of course, that I wanted to stay as a man, heterosexual cross-dresser. But, you know, that's not how many of the decisions of our lives are made, as you know. Who you love, who, what, what profession you want to pursue, what, what, uh, what interests you, you know, these are just, they just come to us. There was someone over here with their hand up. Yeah, you please, sir. She was terrific. Took her five minutes to adjust. First, she thought I might be gay because I'd lost a lot of weight, and she thought I might have had AIDS or something. But then I, I told her what I wanted, and um, she said, "Son, if that's what you want, that that's I support you." She's that way. She's she's um, you know, for a 91-year-old, she's a cool old dame. I'm telling you. Um, she's had a uh, well, I don't need to go into her, the details of her life. But, so that was, that was easy. But that's what's odd about it. You can't predict. You think you know how your sister's going to behave. My progressive, sophisticated PhD psychologist from the best program in the United States, sister, thought, oh, well, Laura will have no problem. And Laura was chasing me around with psychiatrists and butterfly nets to get me into the, the, the psychiatrist grip. Um, I didn't think my, uh, my children would react the way they did. I certainly didn't. If I had known, I would have still done it, which shows again how powerful it is, because, and shows again that it's not a matter of cost and benefit. It's not a matter of, okay, you know, when you're buying a car, that makes a lot of sense. I once bought a Peugeot. Please, don't ever buy a Peugeot. <laughs> but, you know, that was supposed to be a cost and benefit calculation. But not this way. The way my dean reacted is kind of fun. When I told him what I was going to do, his first reaction, now he was, he was an old friend of mine, and he's a free market conservative, although, you know, do I look like a conservative? But anyway, conservative economist. He was my dean. 
of the business school. And I told him what I was going to do and he, when he put his jaw back into his, <laughs> his head, he was just startled by this because I gave no sign of wanting to do this or being effeminate or something. He said, oh, thank God, I thought you were going to confess to converting to socialism. <laughs> then he said, wait a second, this is good for our affirmative action program. Up one, <laughs> down another. And then he said, now wait a second, I pay you a lot. I can cut your salary 70 cents in the dollar. And I knew from the moment that he started making these stand-up comedian jokes that he was going to be my friend and my, my protector, and he was. So it was very <laughs> surprisingly easy to do this on a university campus. I wrote a piece for the Times Higher Education Supplement on that very point, that it was easy to do it on a university campus. And this brilliant headline writer, now, now my, my name was Donald before, right? And he or she came up with this headline, it helps to be a Don if you're going to be a Deirdre. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> yeah. Right, the dean. Yeah. 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 Well, they seem to like the speech. I, I didn't talk about my gender, but it was mentioned in the introduction. In fact, you gave the introduction. Yeah, he gave the introduction, so he mentioned it. It's fine with me. And they didn't sort of... <laughs> It was, it was in the advertising, so yeah. That's right. That's right. I, I have this funny thing that I say that I'm an Episcopalian, postmodern, um, quantitative, literary woman from Boston who was once a man. <laughs> Chicagoan from Boston who once was a man. And so th there was no... And I think you'll find in those circles more of a libertarian attitude than a conventionally conservative attitude, at least the way we use the word conservative. And that seemed to be the case because I got lots of compliments for my speech. And, you know, they didn't. So you might have had possibly more problems with people from a religious background? Yeah, well, it depends on which Anglicans you're talking to, doesn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, that's right, uh, from... Uh, uh, from religious people who think that um, <laughs> that our Lord and Savior had an opinion about transgendered people, <laughs> which or had a hostile opinion, which is even less plausible in the light of the, what we Christians call the New t New t the Testament. Um, you know, it's it's odd about the so-called conservative line on sexual behavior these days. It's a novelty. It's new. It's post-Second World War on the whole. Um, the Mormons, conservatives, right? 1900. 
They didn't care about homosexuality. It didn't bother them very much. What bothered them was, uh, you know, adultery. But homosexuality, eh, big deal. They, it's, it's new, this obsession with sexuality. There are 613 commandments in Orthodox Judaism. And the people with laser focus who go to the, the very few passages in the Old, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that appear to be talking about a, a woman lying with a woman or a man lying with a man, appear to be talking about homosexuality. Four, line, four verses down from that, uh, the, those people are an abomination, it says in, in this place. And uh, when, if you're an abomination, you're to be stoned to death. Four verses down, go check it. There's a verse that says any child that insults his parents is an abomination. Now this means that almost all the teenagers in Australia would be stoned to death. Stoned in another sense. Not too many, no. In fact, that, that's what I expected to happen in Iowa. And I had, a, I, I remember a speech I gave to a big group of undergraduates, a couple of hundred maybe. And two of the kids got up and um, started to express, or expressed, religious objections, so they thought. And I said, well, I understand your point of view, but I wonder if you've actually looked into the biblical scholarship on this point, and they admitted they had read the Good News Bible or something and didn't. Um, and, but I wasn't trying to, you know, put them down. They're just kids. They're 18-year-olds. Um, but the rest didn't care. They, they really didn't. And this is in this supposedly conservative state of Iowa. Uh, there are religious conservatives who would have... But, you know, <laughs> I think homosexuality is kind of work. Interestingly, in Iran, I think this is right. I think I've got this right. In Iran, you can change gender; no one cares. But if you engage in homosexual acts, they, they you're executed. <laughs> let, let me just change a bit. I'll come back to you. So. Yes. Uh, every religion has its religious part and the spiritual part. Yes. Uh, can you talk something about the spiritual which perhaps will help you a lot to get out of all the kind of boundaries which are talking about between yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what I want to go back to this point about what we desire rather this rather than this image of being trapped in a wrong body. What we want is, let's see, spirituality. You could take a Buddhist view of all this and withdraw from the whole matter of gender. That's one way of handling it. But that's not my culture. My culture is, is Christian. Now, I know there are lots of 
European Buddhists. It's not as if this comes with your birth certificate. But in our tradition, as you know, um, well, they, they actually, they're mixed mixed bag here because there are many Buddhist-type Christians, so to speak. I don't mean now. I mean all through the history of Christianity who withdraw from the world. Yeah, yeah. But from that issue. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. I understand. I understand. I understand. And, and, and I, I um, it's a kind of stoic. There would be the, the ancient Western tr tradition. And um, I didn't want to do that. Now, of course, if I get cancer and I'm very sick and might die, I've got to be stoic about it because there's nothing else to be done. Um, but um, if I, the, that's why this epiphany, this thing that happened in August 95 when I was driving down the road to Iowa City, just suddenly hit me that I could do it, that it could be part of my actual life. Uh, Maybe being stoic about it would have been... I, I, see, I, I don't quite agree with that. I think that if you want to have ice cream and you eat it in moderation, you should have ice cream. If you eat ice cream all day, as I would actually prefer to do, then you've got to... Yes, you, 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 what's that again? Don't get carried away. Yeah, I know. Yeah, don't get carried away. But, but, but I don't regard what I've done as in the slightest degree getting carried away, although, you know, I have to say that my, my former wife does. <laughs> she regards it as getting carried away. My husband, she says to herself, she hasn't actually said this to me, so I don't know if this is what she says. She says, my husband has his midlife crisis, and instead of buying a sports car, he changed gender. <laughs> but um, it doesn't feel like being carried away. It feels like becoming myself. Yeah. I don't think they've. I, I I don't hear them saying they're trapped, and they they say it to journalists maybe, or more exactly, the journalists say it to them. I don't think trapped in your own body is the right metaphor. I and th this is kind of an English professor's precision about me metaphors. Maybe it's somewhat pedantic. But I think a much, much better metaphor than trapped in the body is wanting to change. That's all. I didn't know it until I did it. But I knew that I wanted to do it. And I didn't know how profoundly it would bring my soul, let's go, go back to Christianity, um, closer to my persona. So um, it was a, an awful lot of it was a surprise. I was surprised by lots of things. And, I'm, and I must say I'm sort of surprised that, uh, well, for example, I'm surprised that it didn't have any, any sexual element. It's not about sexual pleasure. 
there is an unfortunate group of sexologists, not too many of them, but a minority of the sexology um, researchers who believe that, now hear this, this is a little bit crude, but this is what they say, that gay people, gay men, want to be women. Which is, speak to your average gay person, gay guy, and see if that sounds plausible. And that transgendered men, men who want to be women, or how are we going to do this vocabulary, want to have sex with men. That's what it's all about. So in other words, in both cases, sex, 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 sex. That's what it's about. And this is crazy. This, this doesn't really correspond with my experience at all. I had sexual experiences, that is, I had masturbation in, in connection with my cross-dressing, but big deal. Then I stopped it. I didn't stop it because I decided to. I st when I got serious about changing gender, I didn't want to masturbate. It, it, again, to go back to your, it was about identity, not about love or uh, autogynephilia, that's their word, um, behavior. It's nothing like that. It's who, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be an Australian, go do it. <coughs> so I did it. Yeah. Exactly. 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 That you know you can. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm more on the asexual side, but you can you make a little two by two table. Uh, affectional preference, one or the other. Gender identity, one or the other, and you can fill in all the boxes with people, with actual human beings. You had another question. That's a better way to put it. I think that's right. I think that's right. Because the persona, after all, is your performance. That's right. I think it's right. I'll, I'll do it for now. Yeah. And when they started the testosterone, um, they put it this way. They said, um, I saw this attractive uh, young lady sitting on the, uh, the train reading a book. And when I was a girl, you know, I think, oh, I wonder what book she's reading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, when she had the testosterone, she had like to get her to bed. Yeah, and exactly. And then about different... At him, at him, at him. At least towards sexuality. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was, I, was, I was 53 when I did this, and um, I'm more on the asexual end of all this, although I do look, look at men with more interest than I did before. Before, I looked at men and say, oh, boy, you, I, he, he doesn't look like a very good economist. <laughs> sort of in a competitive way. Um, and um, then now I lo look at them with a kind of consumer attitude. But it's not very strong, and, and I haven't had a boyfriend, and that's too bad for me, but it's not, <laughs> frankly, dear, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm a little happier not to have this sexual drive. One argument I've heard is that uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's I think from a theological point of view. That's yeah. 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 Well, but you know, the the um, when people object to it, and I I haven't really found too many who do. Um, to re object to your using surgery to change your appearance or whatever, I say, well, if you uh, if you uh, had an appendicitis, would you use surgery to change your body? And I say, well, yeah, sure, I had appendicitis. I'm sick. Well, you know, I I, I don't have any big objection to cosmetic surgery. S some feminists do, and I I, I kind of get what they're saying here. But on the other hand, um, you know, if you have a really ugly face, it's much nicer to go through life with an acceptable face. It's just much nicer. It's not so unpleasant. I think one thing we're overlooking is that humans are almost infinitely complex. Yeah, that's the Lord's truth. one thing I do think about that situation that it's not the job of surgeons to do psychiatric examinations and indeed in my opinion on this matter of gender it's not the job of psychiatrists to do the examination because they don't know a thing Kate actually knows about it talk to Kate about it don't talk to some psychiatrist who has seen three trans transgender person in his career you had your hand up did you yeah Okay, let's make it the last one. Go ahead, dear. I decided to do it almost immediately. And my friend, Arya Klammer, I was, I was working on it that first year as a woman in Holland. And I was beavering away at my memoirs. And, and Arya said, well, you know, maybe you better wait a little bit. You say, hey, I've been a woman for six months. It's great. I mean, this is kind of silly. In the end, it took a number of years to get it done. But... I, you know, it's a little odd. I don't mind telling my story in situations like this. I, I've 
done it quite a lot, and when called upon, I'm willing to do it because I, well, I kind of, you know, hey, what's what's the problem here? You're talking about yourself. What's the complaint? <laughs> we all like to talk about ourselves a bit. But I also feel a very strong duty to do this. When I was young, I was in the Vietnam era, 1960s. That's when I was a young person. And I had the correct views on Vietnam. I was against it. But I didn't really do much about it. I didn't emigrate to Canada or burn my draft card or anything like that. I had the correct views on women's liberation. But I didn't do much about it except to support my wife in her education and try to be a good husband. I had the correct views about gay liberation. I said, oh, well, hey, I don't have any problem with gays. I've known them, and that's fine with me. And what, what, what business is it of the state? I had the correct views about colonialism. I thought, boy, we really got to get rid of this colonialism stuff. But I didn't, I didn't go to Uganda. Or actually, I marched against the British refusal to give Ugandan immigrants entrance to the United Kingdom. Well, big deal. I was in favor of, you know, any of these progressive things you wanted. But I'd never really done. I had friends that went down in the civil rights era and took their life in their hands to register black voters in South Carolina. Not me. I worked in the highway department in summer and didn't go to South Carolina. So look, <laughs> God tapped me on the shoulder. My Anglican God, by the way, she's a black woman. <laughs> she, ta she tapped me on the shoulder and said, okay, dear, this is your last chance to stand for what you believe. You believed all that stuff. That was nice, but you, know, you didn't really do anything about it. So I did something about it. I wrote the book. I also wanted my family, my, birth, my marriage family, and my birth family for that matter, but my marriage family especially, to understand it, but I don't think they've read the book. I wanted my colleagues to understand, so I wrote to them too. Uh, so it's my, it's my testament, we say in Christianity. I testified. And um, I think it, look, some people complain about this kind of thing. They say, oh, all these memoirs, the age of the memoir, but particularly elderly male book reviewers tend to do this. Um, oh, you people, you're always telling these intimate details about you. Don't tell me about what it's like to be handicapped. And I don't want to hear about your problems with your marriage. Shut up. Be man up <laughs> in the new expression. Man up. And I think this is the age of the memoir. You've done one, Kate. I've done one. Think about it. Think about a memoir. Because the more memoirs we have and read that are, that are well done, that, that um, s speak to other people and that, that people find interesting, the more we know each other and the less we hate each other. And it's, again, it's not a mathematical understanding. It's not, you know, oh, I understand the Pythagorean theorem. But at least you're telling the story, the narrative. Narrative is fundamental to human beings. And it's how we um, 
Well, it's how we become more human. So don't man up. Woman up. I think so too.